Okay. Anyway, so uh, I am um, uh, excited to be back. I was away last week. Uh, glad to be back and to continue our trek through the old forest. I'm sure that you guys feel like you've been trapped in the old forest as long as the hobbits have been, um, which actually is not that long. Uh, it's one of the interesting effects of it, right? It seems like they're, you know, they're they're sort of, you know, they're they're, they're trapped and helpless, but it's really only been a few hours that they've been in there. Um, but, um, anyhow, so, okay, cool. Uh, so quick before we begin tonight, a couple, uh, uh, announcements that I wanted to make, uh, one concrete and one, uh, vague. My concrete announcement first is, uh, I just wanted to make sure you guys had heard about our, uh, fall courses for Signum at Signum University. We're, you know, we're going to be starting our fall semester in about three more weeks or so. And, uh, we have a couple brand new courses this term, which should be really cool. And of course we have, uh, uh, some really great, uh, courses, which we're cycling through again, that we've offered before. Um, just to show you, this is our, our homepage here and the, uh, the, 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 the blog post there on the front page, uh, gives information about our courses. Our two brand new courses this fall are one, a, uh, a course on Norse myths and sagas. If you've ever wanted to learn more about Norse mythology and Norse epic, which of course Tolkien loved and had a huge influence on Tolkien, uh, we have a wonderful course being taught uh, by Dr. Carl Edlin Anderson, who is the one who taught uh, also our Introduction to Old Norse uh, class. So if you want to be able to read them in the original, uh, be a coalbiter like, uh, like uh, Lewis and Tolkien in their Oxford days, uh, then you can learn Old Norse. But even if you don't learn Old Norse, you can read them in translation uh, and learn more about them and, and get some of that glimpse of the northernness that was so impactful to Tolkien and to Lewis as well, of course. Um, so that's going to be a really, really fun class. And of course, we have our Introduction to Germanic Philology 1. So for those of you who have uh, been interested to study languages, you know, maybe you, you've, been, you've been a language person and you, you know, uh, perhaps even have been infected by Tolkien's own language, of languages as so many Tolkien readers are uh, and would like to uh, to sort of see to get involved in like what is this to like philology thing that Tolkien did uh, Germanic philology one intro to Germanic philology one is sort of the place to begin that to begin looking at uh, the way the the growth of the Germanic languages the relationships between them and beginning that that process of studying and learning how to study uh, the history of languages uh, so it should be it, it'll be really really neat both of those courses are available available uh, to people who would like to audit them. Uh, so you can uh, you can just click through on any of these, and then you can you can see the registration options and stuff. Of course, uh, we have uh, you know our our program available. Uh, you know, our master's degree in language and literature and our certificate programs in Tolkien studies and imaginative lit and Germanic philology uh, for people who want to enroll for credit. So all kinds of options there. Really fun stuff going on this semester. Uh, I encourage you to check out... Um, We've got uh, my, my Chaucer 1 class being offered again this term uh, uh, on Chaucer's early poetry. So if you want to read, uh, really one of the most fun and entertaining writers in the history of the English language. Jeffrey Chaucer is my second favorite author ever. Uh, it's uh, it's one of that was, that, that was such a fun class. Uh, and John Garth's Tolkien's Wars in Middle-Earth. So this is the guy who wrote Tolkien in the Great War uh, on Tolkien's World War I experience and its relationship uh, to his work. Uh, and in that course, Tolkien's Wars in Middle-Earth, uh, John Garth digs in uh, to that material much deeper and really begins to show uh, more about, not only about Tolkien, but 
the other uh, uh, members of the TCBS, his childhood uh, sort of group uh, that was such a formative part of Tolkien's life. So anyway, lots of wonderful, wonderful things there. Uh, so, okay. So that's my concrete announcement. Just wanted to draw your attention to the offerings for the fall. Uh, I encourage you to, you know, to, if you have questions about our program, browse around on our website here, uh, get in touch with us, ask questions. Uh, you know, I really want to encourage you to look into that. So that's my concrete announcement. My second announcement, uh, is my vague announcement is, I'm really excited about the Mordor expansion in Lord of the Rings Online, which just dropped last week. And uh, I am uh, thinking of creating a high elf character and going and jumping ahead and exploring Mordor, perhaps. Uh, So I haven't decided yet exactly what I'm going to do, but I'm thinking of doing a special stream event where I I, I look at the the Mordor stuff because I, I can't. I can't wait. I'm a completionist and I'm moving my characters through and they're not ready for it yet. But you know what? The high elf class, I have to create a high elf anyway because I really want, I really need to look at that class. Um, so I'm really, really interested to see what they're doing with the high elves uh, and uh, to, uh, to, to, of course, go on and explore Mordor and the storylines and the adaptation that they have there. So I'm really interested uh, in doing that. So I think I'm, 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 I'm kind of vaguely planning something special here. Uh, I'm going to see if I can uh, maybe convince some of the Standing Stone guys to, uh, to come in and join me uh, uh, for the stream. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of trying to work on that. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens. But so no promises about anything, but again, this is, it's, it's coming. So, uh, th- just wanted to, to let you know about that. Um, all right, let us jump into our discussion here tonight, back to the old forest. So, um, all right, um, tonight our, the class session is called Believing the Stories. Remember that uh, there, there are two things. First of all, you'll remember that Sam uh, says that he believes, you know, the stories, you know, uh, th- that, th- you know, whatever Ted Sandyman may say, you'll recall, uh, back from chapter two. The believing the stories also comes in to the old forest stuff, right? We will see in tonight's class, Pippin say, I'm beginning to believe all the stories about it, right? That is about the old forest. Um, and it's one of the things that I am most interested in when we get to Old Man Willow, right? When 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 stuff starts getting real, you know, uh, it's been kind of vague. It's been it's been present the conflict with the forest, right? The hobbits versus trees that we've been seeing going on over the last couple sessions as we've watched uh, the hobbits go into the old forest. There's been a real. Um, conflict between them, right? We saw what was almost like a like a battle of wills between Frodo and the forest when he sings his song and then his song gets suppressed uh, and uh, and you know and the rest of the tree you know he, he feels this this sort of crushing weight down on him, right uh, which seems to be the trees sort of the will of the forest retaliating against him. We've seen uh, the then you know the forest guiding them along and then leading them down to the withy window. Um, the, when we finally get to old man Willow, right, the conflict is going to become much more overt, much more out in the open. We're going to get, we're get, you know, we, we come to the center from which all the queerness comes, right, in the forest, as uh, Mary said of the Withy Window. And what fascinates me is the hobbits' responses. So I want to be really looking at all four of the hobbits and their reactions to Old Man Willow throughout this episode. We're not going to get to Tom Bombadil tonight. I have no aspirations of getting to Tom Bombadil tonight. We may, uh, if we do really well, we may get 
we may finish the encounter with Old Man Willow and be ready for Tom Bombadil uh, next week. That's my, my, my hope is to do Tom Bombadil and finish Chapter 6 next week. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see how uh, close we get. Now, in the meantime, um, let's uh, answer two quick questions. Uh, one, Dietlbaum, uh made a great point. Remember I mentioned about Sancho Proudfoot uh, being actually sort of in line or having been somewhat disinherited, uh, having a, actually a better claim uh, to, Bil- as, to as Bilbo's heir than Frodo did, uh, giving the, the, the tussle between Frodo and Sancho Proudfoot uh, a little bit more sort of zest when you look at it from a genealogical perspective. Right? Dietlbaum points out since I looked at the genealogy, if I did the math right, Sancho was 11 years old during the long-expected party. Frodo shouldn't have had much trouble taking him out, he says. Uh, To which I would say... Uh, first, when was the last time you wrestled an 11-year-old, right? If you think that's trivial, you've got another thing coming. But of course, it also, that, 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 that does, and he's right, he was 11 years old. Uh, his date of birth uh, in the genealogy is 1390, um, which, is in, which is indeed 11 years before the long-expected party. Uh, so he would have been, uh, Sancho Proudfoot would have been 28 uh, at the time of the Fellowship of the Ring. In other words, he's just about the same age that Pippin is. Um, anyway, so, okay, so um, uh, here's Sancho Proudfoot, right? It helps to explain, if if Sancho's 11, uh, he could put up a tussle. It doesn't say that Frodo has a really hard time with him, right? You know, Frodo beats him, but um, uh, but still, he has, to, he has to tussle with him. But it, to me, it kind of puts into context the uh, his actions, right? Sancho's actions. I mean, one sort of natural question is, uh, you know, to what extent, like, or wh- why would he be doing that? I mean, he's like in there digging in the walls. That seems a peculiar thing to do. But when you think about an 11-year-old doing that, actually, it makes a lot more sense to me, right? Uh, that he, uh, not only that he thinks that kind of treasure hunting is 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 okay, but basically with the, like the total lack of decorum of going into somebody else's house and excavating uh, with tools in the wall, right, uh, for treasure. Uh, you know, thinking about that from an 11-year-old standpoint, and Emma Thorne, I agree, it does, it does make it funnier too. And JJ, I absolutely agree. The fact that it comes to blows, right, and Frodo actually has to like physically put him in a lock and drag him out of the house, um, Thinking of uh, the eleven-year-old does kind of make that uh, um, make more sense. Exactly, Tony. Just what I was thinking—that it seems like the actions of a kid to go exploring and excavating without permission. Totally, totally. But yeah, it's really neat. I was looking at the genealogy again uh, in preparation, uh, and it's 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 very pronounced. It sounds similar, right? Like a Odo, or sorry, not Odo. Sancho Proudfoot is Bilbo's second cousin twice removed. Uh, compared to Frodo, who's his second cousin once removed. And that sounds practically identical to us, right? But it's totally not. It's a big deal, actually, because what it means is that he is in Bilbo's immediately extended family. That is, uh, he, Sancho Proudfoot, like Bilbo, is descended uh, from, uh, from, so Bungo Baggins was Mungo Baggins' son. Bilbo, as you can see, is the patriarch of the Baggins clan. He's the, he's the only child of the eldest son of the eldest son of the head of the Baggins family. So, uh, you know, the, sort of the, the progenitor of the Baggins family on the genealogy anyway. So Bilbo is like, you know, 
primogeniture in line as the as the the head of the Baggins family. Um, Bungo, his father, was the oldest son of Mungo Baggins, who had like four other kids, and so when he you know, dies without heir, right? Or, you know, not doesn't die, but when he uh, goes away, right? Uh, and, 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 and doesn't have children, right? Of his person, then logically it would go to the next male, you know, the next like son of the, of the, of, of Bungo's younger son. And you know, who is the son of like, who is Bungo's nephew, right? Oh, those Sackville Baggins, right? So um, the Sackville Bagginses are Bilbo's heirs. We're told that, right? That, and there's reason that they should have been his heirs. Clearly, they are next in line to be the head of the Baggins family if Bilbo goes away uh, without, you know, a child to leave it to. And Sancho Proudfoot is from the next son. So they're the three sons uh, of Mungo Baggins. Uh, Bungo was the oldest, and he's the father of Bilbo. Uh, I'm forgetting the other two names uh, of the other the other two sons. But the second son is the father of Otho Sackville Baggins, uh, and the third son is the grandfather of Sancho Proudfoot. So, you know, it uh, it actually, and then Frodo is in a completely different family tree. Like, uh, well, not a completely different family tree, but um, he's so like Mungo, like Bilbo's grandfather's younger uh, uh, sister, I think, is the progenitor of, of Drogo Baggins. So Drogo Baggins is, qu- you know, and then Frodo after him, is quite a distant relation uh, of Bilbo uh, through in the in the Baggins side. There's, no, I mean, Frodo, if it just went, you know, by, uh, uh, by primogeniture, Frodo would no way be heir. He'd be way down the list after Otho, after Sancho. Um... But uh, but that, but of course, Bilbo chooses his heir and made no mistake about that. Um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, cool. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, quick. I think that Sancho is 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 his first cousin twice removed. Yeah. Did I say that? That's what I meant to say. Right. Because he's two generations. He's two generations down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Tony says, do we ever get an explanation for the hyphenated name Sackville Baggins? What I don't, I mean, I, Tony, on the one hand, yes. I mean, again, if you look at the, gene, that the genealogy, you can see that um, Otho's father married a Sackville. Um, what I don't know, Tony, like a convention that I, I, I don't know the reason for, or I can't remember the reason for, is why they would hyphenate it. Right. I mean, that that seems to happen in some cases, but not at all. Um, it was a male Baggins who married a female Sackville, but their children were hyphenated Sackville Baggins rather than um, uh, rather than just being Baggins, which seems to happen most of the time. A simple name change. Um, uh yeah, Crooked Heart says it seems very Sackville Baggins to refuse to give up her maiden name, maybe. Though, see, that's the thing, uh, uh, Julia, is that um, Lobelia does. Lobelia was a brace girdle. Uh, so she does change her name to Sackville Baggins, right? So it's, it's, it's the next generation up. Otho is a Sackville Baggins. Um, with, so I don't know if his father changed his name, and I think his father was Largo, right? That, that, sounds, that sounds right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, so yeah, so I'm not really sure, 
the rationale behind the um, uh, behind the the hyphenation um, that I just don't get. Um, and yes, JJ, why Sackville Baggins rather than Baggins Sackville? You'd think it would be, right? Yeah, no, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I suspect that there is a reason for that, but I'm I don't remember anywhere that Tolkien explained that. Um, but uh, but there might be one that I'm forgetting. And yes, Matt, it, it does make a lot of sense why Otho uh, uh, Sackville Baggins would insist on seeing the will, right? Because if the will is not done all right and proper, right, with the correct number of signatures and the correct color ink, then he, you know, if Bilbo were to go away intestate, then Otho is definitely the heir. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Matt is suggesting the Sackvilles would have had to have been the more, the more prominent family. That seems possible, um, especially if, I mean, we know that there is the tradition of having, like, the the person or the family, which is like the head of the family. So there's the person who is the Baggins, right? Bilbo is the Baggins. I mean, he's the head of the Baggins, of the whole Baggins family. Um, it makes me wonder if uh, maybe the Sackville who marries uh, Largo Baggins was the Sackville, right? And didn't want to, you know, wanted to retain sort of uh, uh, their rights and privileges in the Sackville family, and so didn't drop the name. That, but I'm, I'm, I'm wildly guessing. I'm kind of making things up here. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Sarah uh, Lagarde says she was at a large family reunion last weekend with numerous generations of first, second, and third cousins, uh, and everyone was impressed that she could keep up with the terminology. Uh, and she credits it all to Tolkien's appendices. Sarah, totally the same thing with me. Uh, I have a, a big. My father's family is very clannish in this way, and I, I, I know and you know correspond with many of my second and even third cousins on my father's side. Uh, and uh, I mean, in fact, it was funny when I was when I when I was in grad school and living in New York City, um, I had family from my dad's family who lived just outside the city. I used to park my car with them and just sort of take the bus out when I needed my car for trips. Uh, and so people would say, hey, so, you know, you've got family, you know, who are you, who do you park your car with? And I'm like, oh, my, my first cousin twice removed because uh, it's my grandfather's cousin. Uh, and but so, and nobody could keep it straight. Yeah, absolutely, Sarah. It's totally if you once you uh, once you work, spend some time working out Hobbit family trees, your own family tree becomes easier. Um yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay, cool. Um, so, all right, I didn't mean to spend this much time on the genealogy, but hey, it's endlessly fascinating to hobbits, right? Um, okay, next question. Um, this was a really neat observation from Tungle. Uh, I've been struck in this reading how many interludes there are where Frodo and the other hobbits encounter scenes that are described in terms of sea voyaging. In chapter 3, we have the line, Touched with red, with gold and red, the autumn trees seem to be sailing rootless in a shadowy sea. Remember, that's during their, during their journey when Frodo is looking out. And he's about to say, Will I ever look down into that valley again, I wonder, right? In Frodo's dream at the end of chapter 5, eventually he fell into a vague dream in which he seemed to be looking out of a high window over a dark sea of tangled trees. In chapter 6, when the hobbits stop on the green hill, they were on an island in a sea of trees, and the horizon was veiled. Uh, on the southeastern side, the ground fell steeply as if the slopes of the hill were continued to, were 
continued far down under the trees like island shores that really are the side of a mountain rising out of deep waters. It strikes me that these form a pattern where Tolkien uses voyages over the sea as a symbol for the journey of the hobbits. In terms of the Green Hill interlude, is there a hint of Olmo here? We can see that the hobbits are described as being on an island in the sea, perhaps like the fairy island of Olmo? In the chapter 3 quote, we have the shadowy sea, which is the phrase that Tolkien uses in the Silmarillion to refer to the sea around Valinor after the exile of the Noldor. It seems that we are repeatedly prompted with symbolism relating the journey of the hobbits with the sailing to Valinor. And then this is a sort of critfic question. We know that Tolkien wanted to publish the Silmarillion alongside the Lord of the Rings, but wasn't able to. Do you think that passages like these relating the Hobbit's journey to the older legends was one of his ways of getting them subtly into the Lord of the Rings? Great question. Okay, so first of all, love the love the observation. Uh, I would say, for you know, first let's kind of look at the what kind of pattern can we see here, right? How is um, how is sort of the, the, the sea imagery being used? Um, and one thing that I think that we can see, um, um, uh, that, that we can see as a pattern with all of these things, right? The, um, the sea is used as a metaphor when Tolkien is describing, in, in this case, in all three cases, it's forests, right? It's, 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 bodies of trees and all three in all three cases bodies of trees seen from above right down in the valley in chapter three uh from the top of a tower in his dream in chapter five and then uh from the top from the top of the bald hill uh in chapter six so um those are all very parallel situations um but you know it's it's so it's something that's sort of great not quite uniform, right, in motion, uh, but sort of amorphous and also kind of mysterious, right? You know, like when you're seeing it as uh, a, a sort of a landscape that doesn't look quite like a landscape, right? It looks like a seascape. Um, so, you know, the, the the parallels among those, I think, are, um, you know, it's it's interesting that he, he keeps using that language uh, when we're when when he's describing a similar kind of thing the connection between the forests and the sea um i'm i'm not 100% sure what to make of it do i think that there's sort of something symbolic here maybe i'm not sure i'm convinced that this necessarily goes as far as com- uh, sort of comparing the hobbit's journey to a sea voyage maybe um I'm not going to rule that out, but uh, I think that that's I, I I think that that's possible. But I would say, uh, at least so far, thinking of these thinking of these three, to me it says more about the nature of the countryside and specifically the nature of the forest. The comparison seems to me um, between forests and the sea in general. Um, and to me, the most revealing one of those things is that last one, the one that we looked at last week from the Bald Hill, right? Um, because there we get not only an idea of this the superficial look, I mean, the look over the surface, right? Um, looking down from a height over the top of a forest and the sort of undulating and, and moving and waving and rippling surface of a forest, right? Which looks, you know, which, which, which looks like the sea. But in that third comparison in chapter six, we get the idea of 
plunging down underneath it, right? The fact that that surface, you know, that the, the, the reminder that that surface, like the surface of the sea, right, is only the very top layer and that there's this entire world, right, underneath it. Because, of course, uh, only in the third one are they about to plunge down, you know, and go underwater, essentially, into that realm. Um, and yeah, uh, Matt, I agree, season forests are untamed places, both of them. Um, there is something wild, and I said mysterious before, I think there's something there too, you know, that it's um, it's the unknown. You know, the, the question that I had, um, you know, Tungle, that your question really kind of made me think about, was, um, okay, uh, how... How does this, what light does this shine or, or, or how does this make us think of the whole status of the sea, really, um, uh, in Tolkien's imagination, if you see what I mean by that. That is to say, um, we know that the sea longing, the sea is a big deal, right? But what exactly does it stand for? Or to ask the question another way, that sounds less English teachery. um, when, pe- when people in Middle-earth long for the sea, what are they longing for, exactly? Right? I mean, like, the experience of being on a boat, right? There's more to it than that. Obviously, there's more to it than that. What is it? Is the sea like a mountain you need to climb, right? Is it crossing the sea? Is it seeing what's on the other side of the sea? Is it what? What is it, exactly? I, we, we, what do you long for exactly when you're longing for the sea? Is it the ocean itself? The ocean going experience? Is it, it's, is it a, a, a escape from the, from the weariness of the world? Uh, says the, the, now, how do you pronounce that? Is it Countess of O-L-E? Ole? I like that. The Countess of Ole! Uh, I don't know if that, Ole, okay. Ole, Ole works too. Ole is more fun, though, you have to admit. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, it, th- there is certainly an other word, an other world element, right, to the sea. Um, and that's important. I, I definitely think that that's important. Um, but uh, I... I don't know. Um yeah, Tamara says, I always thought it was longing for Valinor. In many cases, yes. You know, like the the sea longing is a sort of, um, well, not exactly a metaphor. What would it, what would it be? Synecdoche? Metonymy? I'm not sure which it is, actually. Um, but, you know, it's the, really, it's the longing for the thing that's on the other side of, uh, uh, of the ocean. Hey, Adane. Um, yeah, so, I, 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 but that's clearly not it for everybody, right? There are many people who long for just clearly just long for the sea, right? Um, and the you know the 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 longing that is stirred up by the call of Ulmo, you know, by the horns of Ulmo, is not the longing for Valinor, right? It's different. I mean, it may get connected to it, but it's uh, it's not. It's clearly not exactly the same. Um, but um, 
Yeah, yeah, Julia, I agree. Sailing on the sea and entering the forest are both a sort of entering into fairy, right? Well, exa- I mean, think about think about think about the status of the forest in fairy tales, right? I mean, the deep forest. I mean, that's that's a fairy frontier in so many fairy tales, um, and so the ocean is kind of parallel to that, definitely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Catriona says, what would most people beside the elves know of Valinor, though? Well, but the thing is, do we have evidence of... I can only think of one example of somebody who is really smitten with the sea longing who doesn't already know elves, right? Who either isn't an elf or is already associated with elves. Uh, And that would be Tuor, Sort of. He's met elves, right? He's, you know, in one versions of the story, he's raised by, or sort of grows up with gray elves when he's on the lamb uh, in Hithlum. But, um, but anyway, I, you know, still, his sea longing is fairly independent of the whole elf thing. Um, but, um, yeah. Anyway, I don't know. So it's it's something worth uh, worth looking at, and Tongo, I'll certainly uh, we'll keep watching for that pattern of imagery. Look at look for those sea comparisons. But Tongo, to get to your specific question there at the end um, uh, about your critfic question, do I think this is a way that Tolkien is kind of backing the Silmarillion stuff in? Yes and no. I mean, yes in the sense that. I mean, I don't think it's like a like a little conspiracy on Tolkien's probably going to slip the Silmarillion stuff in. I hope they don't notice, you know, that kind of thing. But rather, it's just kind of busting out of him, right? I mean, he has... There are these elements, there are these stories that he loves, that he's been in love with for decades at this point. Um, and these concepts, these images, these characters, these themes, these concepts uh, that arise throughout the Silmarillion stories um, are... They come out, right? They just, they just happen. Um... And so, does he think that way? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, absolutely he thinks that way. I mean, he, he you know, d- do his metaphors kind of come back to Silmarillion concepts and Silmarillion themes? Yeah, because that stuff is pretty deep in him right now um, and has been now for quite a while. So uh, that, that totally happens. But um, I don't think it's necessarily him trying to kind of back around to the stories exactly because he was we see him doing that in some places uh, where he brings in uh, exposition like let's tell the story of, oh, I don't know, Baron and Luthien, right, Uh, in order to kind of bring that in. Um, But it doesn't um, uh, I don't think that that's in in cases like this. I don't think it's necessarily that. Um, But uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. Let's um. Let's get back to the land of willows here. Okay. Um. Very good. All right. So we were just uh the 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 trees had entrapped them right. Remember they were they've been led along on paths. Um. Now uh. Jonathan, you had asked a long question on the forum about the paths and the making of paths. We're going to talk about that. Uh, I didn't put that one in the notes and queries, but we're going to talk about that some today. Um, I, just to review, I feel that it, I feel fairly confident that the paths they have been following through the trees have been made by the trees, 
right? Including the one that leads them to the Bald Hill. Um, as I was arguing last week, I think they're being taunted by the Bald Hill. Uh, I mean, they're going up on the Bald Hill is not they're escaping from the trees. They feel that way, right? They feel like, oh, we've been liberated. But you remember, even the view from that hill is strategically restricted. Um, they can't see up to the uh, up to the north where they want to go, um, and what they do see is deliberately misleading. And that's in in, in the end what leads them down the the merry path to the Withywindle that they end up being trapped on. Um, so I think all the paths, you know, and when Mary talks about something makes paths. What makes paths? The trees make paths. So all the, I'm convinced that all the paths they have been following so far have been tree-made paths uh, through the old forest. But we will uh, get to, I think, another example here. Uh, pretty soon. All right, so what happens when we get down there? After stumbling along for some way along the stream, they came quite suddenly out of the gloom. As if through a gate, they saw the sunlight before them. Coming to the opening, they found that they had made their way down through a cleft in a high steep bank, almost a cliff. At its feet was a wide space of grass and reeds, and in the distance could be glimpsed another bank, almost as steep. A golden afternoon of late sunshine lay warm and drowsy upon the hidden land between. In the midst of it, there wound lazily a dark river of brown water, bordered with ancient willows, arched over with willows, blocked with fallen willows, and flecked with thousands of faded willow leaves. The air was thick with them, fluttering yellow from the branches, for there was a warm and gentle breeze blowing softly in the valley, and the reeds were rustling, and the willow boughs were creaking. "'Well, now I have at least some notion of where we are,' said Mary. "'We have come almost in the opposite direction to which we intended. "'This is the River Withywindle. I will go on and explore.'" Okay, so, um, first of all, you gotta love Mary here, right? We talked about Mary and Mary's leadership last time, right? We see, notice Mary's still, um, um, Mary's still on the face of it, right? He's still trying to put a, put a, put a good face on it, right? He's still doing the puddle glum thing. Um, he's still trying, so he's trying to keep their spirits up. He's trying, still trying to speak confidently, even at the same time that he's announcing we have failed almost completely, right? Instead of leaving as we were hoping to be able to do by this time of the day, we've come in the opposite direction and we're now in the heart of the forest. We're like further from the edge than we've ever been, right? This could be a time of gloom. Uh, but instead he's like, Oh great. Well, um, the silver lining, right? Silver lining is now we know just we're not lost anymore. Now we know just where we are. True, it's exactly where we didn't want to be, but by golly, we're not lost. So that's great. Huh? That's great, Mary. So uh, it's um, you know, it's it's not um, it's it's not good news. Uh, but anyway, it's uh, it's 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 still uh fun to see Mary trying to keep up his end there, um. Yeah, so look at the rest of it, though. I really love the description of um, um, I really love the description of this of this valley. Notice the privacy of it. Look at the description, right? So they they've they've come down this gully, right, from which they can't escape. So they're 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 you know they they were going down and out of these ruts, right, that were made 
maybe by old roads, maybe by just by streams. Uh, and anyway, so they got down to the one they couldn't climb out of, and so they ended up having to follow it all the way down uh, to the Withy window. Um, so they've been in this cleft, and they come out, and it's like a gateway. Notice the, the gateway, the doorway imagery here, right? Um, they come through this break in a, in, a, in a cliff, which is almost arched over with trees, right? Um, as if through a gate, they come out into the sunlight. It's like they've been released. They're free. They've been set free, having been entrapped by the forest, except it's not freedom, right? It's actually more like uh, this, is not, this is not a doorway out. This is a doorway in, right? Uh, because, of course, you see on the other side, there's also a high, steep bank, almost a cliff. Almost a cliff, right? That's where they came from. Right? Coming to the opening, they found they had made their way down through a cleft, almost a cliff. And then uh, there's a wide space of grass and reeds, and in the distance, another bank almost as steep. So the the river is in this steep valley. Now, it's not like hundreds of feet high, right? Uh, but it's certainly higher than they can get out, especially with their ponies. Um, so they're they're trapped here in this valley. But it's an attractive trap. Right, it's open and clear, a wide space of grass and reeds. Right, nothing but them and dozens and dozens of willow trees. Right, um, yeah, yeah, um, and it's so it's it's yeah. Lady Schmebulock says uh, the trees are luring them into a false sense of security. Yeah, I mean. It's fascinating to me that the trap that they're being led into um, does have this sort of pleasant air to it. That is to say, the trees are not just overpowering them. The trees are not just bullying them. The trees are not just compelling them um, or beating them or whatever, right? Presumably that could have happened. Remember the tree that dropped a branch right behind them. Presumably if they had wanted to, like, pummel them to death, they probably could have gotten it done before this time. But that's not the plan of the trees. The plan of the trees is to bring them down here. And the here to which it was brought is this nice, beautiful, apparently open place, just with walls around it, so you can't get out. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> very nice. Uh, uh, Julia Crookedheart says they've already met some sudden trees and now they're at the secret gate, remembering, of course, Frodo's song. A sudden tree or a standing stone that none have glimpsed save we alone. They'll get to the standing stone later on, right? Uh, but the sudden trees, right? It's a, a, a phrase well remembered in the context of, uh, of the old forest here, right? Uh, yeah, very good. Um, yeah, yeah, very good. A new road or a secret gate. Yes, exactly. It is a secret gate. Um, yeah, yeah, Matt is saying he'd never noticed it before, but there are a lot of parallels between this place and Rivendell. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's There is that element, right? It's, Matt, I mean, it sounds like... This could look like a good thing, right? 
look, you found the entrance to the secret valley, right? Here's this beautiful secret valley, right? Uh, that you can't even really see it. I mean, remember how it was concealed by the mist and everything? It's all mysterious and private. And now they get down, you know, they find the, the secret way down into it. And here they've come in through the gate. And, and uh, you know, it's like their own little private, well, you know, I don't know, own little private valley. This is cool. Um, yeah, yeah. Listen to the sounds, right? The air was thick with them, with the leaves, fluttering yellow from the branches, for there was a warm and gentle breeze blowing softly in the valley, and the reeds were rustling, and the willow boughs were creaking. That's probably just natural, right? I mean, you know, they creak. It's windy. There's a breeze. And they creak in the wind, right? They're totally not talking to each other. That's absolutely not what's happening here. Um... Yeah. And Marianne, you're absolutely right. And someone had mentioned this as well. It does sound like the Land of Willows in the first stage. Um, in the Silmarillion stuff, it gets referred to. Of course, Treebeard brings it up in his song about Beleriand when he's singing his, you know, in the Willow Meads of Tessaranon. Um, uh, but, and that's the first line of the poem, right? Isn't it? Um, anyway, the, the, the Willow Meads. Down there at the at the southern end of the uh, of the River Syrian in Beleriand, um, got much more play in uh, uh, in the earlier stages. That is the pre nineteen thirty seven stages. So before Tolkien started writing the Lord of the Rings, uh, the earlier versions of the Silmarillion material featured the Land of Willows much much more prominently. Um, for instance, it's it's there. It wasn't on the ocean shore uh, in a storm. It was in the land of willows, where Tuor first met uh, Olmo, and Olmo gave to Tuor his mission to go up to to Gondolin. That was that that happened in the land of willows originally. So it, it was it was it was much more um, much more prominent the land of willows back in the old days. Um, now, what does that connection tell us? I don't really know exactly. Um, uh, I'm not sure exactly how much it helps us, you know, because does that mean that this land of willows is like that land of willows? Not necessarily, um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, sure, certainly in one sense, this is another uh, little moment of Tolkien recycling some of those uh, some of those concepts. Um, all right, so let's keep going. He, Mary, of course, passed out into the sunshine and disappeared into the long grasses. After a while, he reappeared and reported that there was fairly solid ground between the cliff foot and the river. In some places, firm turf went down to the water's edge. What's more, he said, there seems to be something like a footpath winding along on this side of the river. If we turn left and follow it, we shall be bound to come out on the east side of the forest eventually." I dare say, said Pippin, that is, if the track goes on so far, and does not simply lead us into a bog and leave us there, who made the track, do you suppose, and why? I'm sure it was not for our benefit. I am getting very suspicious of this forest and everything in it, and I begin to believe all the stories about it. Have you got any, have you any idea how far eastward we should have to go? Um. Oh. Uh, uh, people were asking about uh, Willows creaking. Willows Creek. 
they totally creak. Um, I had a, I had a, an ill-fated weeping willow in my backyard when I lived down in Delaware. Uh, ill-fated because it, it was not a healthy tree. I think it had been corrupted. I was a little worried about it, actually. Uh, it began to attack me more and more actively when I was trying to mow the lawn around it, and I have to admit I didn't weep any tears when we finally had to knock down the rest of that thing. It was, um, uh, you know, when Treebeard says that some of the trees are are bad right through, right? And he says, I don't mean their wood. Well, this one's wood was bad too. But I'm, 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 I'm kind of thinking that the heart of that tree was turning black. I, I never really trusted that willow. But it did creak. I did hear it creak. Um, so, uh, yeah, absolutely. Anyway, um, okay. Tony, very good, pointing out again that once again, actions are being assigned to the path. Um, and no, Blue Wizard, it wasn't Old Man Willow in my backyard. It was it was Young Man Willow, but he was still he was still bad. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty convinced. Um, but um, anyway, okay, yeah. So um, yes, Tony, actions being ascribed to the path. Uh, the path is um, uh, winding along on this side of the river, right? Exactly. It's gonna it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna lead them to the other side, right? Um. Yeah, so, um, first off, again, Mary being, uh, looking on the bright side of things, right? Trying to stay, uh, stay the course, right? To be determined if we, you know, this is heading east, east is good, right? Actually, no, east isn't that good, because east is towards the Barrow Downs, which, you'll remember they said they had no intention of going that way. But now, of course, any direction is better than nothing, and east, of course, is at least, like, will bring them out on the Rivendell side of the Old Forest, so it's better than west or south, right? Um, Where they really wanted to go is north to catch the road, but, you know, east uh, will do. Um, yeah, oh good, Mike points out that it's not just the narrator attributing actions to the path now, it's, uh, it's actually, uh, Mary himself in his, uh, in his description. Um, yeah, yeah. And Pippin, of course, um, the, that the, the path will lead them into a bog and leave us there. He's suspicious of these paths. And as I suggest in my subtitle here, I think his suspicion is entirely appropriate. I think his reservations about blindly following paths seem to be um, quite sensible, actually. Uh, And that, I think, uh, uh, really makes a whole lot of sense, right? Um, That he should be suspicious. Um, Now, however, despite Pippin's very appropriate uh, suspicions... I think that we clearly have a different kind of path here. Um, a couple of you have been saying, well, mightn't Tom Bombadil be the one making paths? And that the reference that Mary makes earlier on saying, you know, but something in there makes paths. We don't know what it is, right? I don't think that's Tom Bombadil. I don't think so. Um, the paths that they're following near the Shire, when they go through the Buckland Gate and they're going to the Bonfire Glade, from the Bonfire Glade to the hill, down from the hill, and the the the, the, the deceptive path that keeps curving away to the south uh, until they leave it and then are funneled down into the cleft and then down to the Withy Windle. Those are tree paths. I'm pretty convinced those are tree paths. I don't see any reason to think that Tom Bombadil is making those paths. This path, however, is different. 
right? It's a footpath. It's a footpath through open grassland. So unless the trees are like getting up and walking on this path continually, it's not the trees, right? This is not a path, the kind of forest path that's just made by gaps between trees, right? Which is what they were doing before. This is a path through the grass, clearly by something with feet, right? Hence why it's called uh, a footpath. I definitely uh, think that this is, I mean, the evidence is going to suggest this is a Tom Bombadil path, right? Um, but Pippin's suspicious. Suspicions. Who made the track, do you suppose, and why? Right. Okay, so something made a path. Great. Wonderful. We can use that to get to the east? Yeah, well, maybe, but can we think about what are we going to meet on this path? Right? What could possibly come here often enough to make a path, right? And it can't be anything good. I mean, we're at the River Withywindle, right? Who would live here? Um, Who would come here often enough? This has got to be a bad thing. Now, he's not right about that. But his thinking is not bad, right? Um, I mean, I think he's... um, uh, His reaction is very sensible. Um, I'm getting very suspicious of this forest and everything in it, and I begin to believe all the stories about it. Pippin seemed fairly skeptical at the beginning. Is it only the trees that are dangerous, right? Which sort of uh, suggested that he wasn't really taking the danger from the trees very seriously at the beginning, right? Um, but yeah, good logic, bad conclusion, Lincoln, I think is exactly uh, what we what we see here. Um and why, Lincoln, why Why does good logic, you know, good reasoning lead him to a bad conclusion? Because he assumes that anything that is living here in the middle of the forest has to be bad. There's sense to that, but of course that turns out to be wrong. Um, and, and yes... Uh, singing fox, I agree. There is something ironic in the fact that you know, the first time that they get suspicious about a path, uh, it turns out to be, uh, it turns out to be, you know, they, they turn out to be wrong about that. But, of course, they don't have too many options. Uh, so he's just, you know, asked, do you have any idea how far we have to go? No, said Mary, I haven't. I don't know in the least how far down the withy window we are, or who could possibly come here often enough to make a path along it. But there is no other way out that I can see or think of. So, um, remember how dismissive Mary was about, you know, like wolves and goblins that, uh, Fatty's nurse used to tell him about? Uh, he was quite dismissive about that. But, it's kind of all they've got. And I think when Pippin says, I'm beginning to believe all the old, all the stories about it, that I think that's what he's referring to, right? Can we go back to Fatty's nurse, right? Okay, so you said that Fatty's nurse told him these stories and that they were not true, but, you know, um, <laughs> maybe they are. Uh, I could imagine goblins uh, coming through here. Um, there being nothing else for it, they filed out and Mary led them to the path that he had discovered. Everywhere the reeds and grasses were lush and tall, in places far above their heads, but once found, the path was easy to follow, as it turned and twisted, picking out the sounder ground among the bogs and pools. See, Tony, look at that, right? The path is picking out the sounder ground. It's making choices, right? Here and there it passed over the rills, running down gullies into the withy window out of the higher forest lands, and at these points there were tree trunks or bundles of brushwood laid carefully across. 
And I agree, a couple of you had been mentioning this. Um, I completely agree that the fact that there are fallen logs being used as little bridges across places where the path crosses water, I think, proves this is not a tree path, right? This is clearly um, from somebody else. And Tom, and we're going to see Tom skipping his way down this very path uh, uh, in a very short while. So um, I think it's very clearly a Tom Bombadil path. But again, I think we notice how we're being shown differences. This path is different from the other paths that we were seeing. And this is the clearest difference uh, that we have seen, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, several of you are uh, conjecturing on the uh, ill fate, perhaps, of goblins if they did come into the old forest. Probably. I mean, our experience in Fangorn would seem to suggest that, but maybe it's different up here. You know, I don't know that they would necessarily, the trees would necessarily be um, antagonistic to orcs and goblins um, if they didn't have cause. Who knows? Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see. Good. Good. Um, also, notice another thing. Notice how not only sunny and cheerful, but how lush it is, right? With the the grass and the reeds growing up above their heads. There's no... And, and on the one hand, you may say, well, okay, but yeah, right. But I mean, it's a river valley, right? Of course there's tall grass growing next to the river. Of course there's lots of willows growing next to the river. It's where willows love to grow. Yeah, sure, of course. But the point is um, that... We're getting near to Old Man Willow. In many places, in most places in Tolkien, where we see the center of a malevolent power, there's a blight, like the Desolation of Smaug, right? I mean, look at Mirkwood, right? And the spider colonies. Look at... Mordor, obviously, but um, you know, even in sort of lesser places, look what happened. Look what Saruman does to Isengard. You know, almost any time you get near to a, a, a malevolent figure, there's some kind of external evidence. It's interesting to me that Old Man Willow doesn't have corruption around him. That everything is lush and green and cheerful and sunny and healthy around him. Um, that uh, that to me is not something that I would take for granted at all. In fact, again, I'm trying to think of other examples. Can you think of any other Tolkien villains other than Old Man Willow, who lives in the middle of bright, green, lush, healthy, growing places? Um, yeah, good. Marion was just e- emphasizing how bright and sunny it is. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it looks cheerful as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sharon suggests Lobelia. She doesn't count. Lobelia Sackville Baggins doesn't count as a Tolkien villain or monster in this way. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, good, yeah. Um, uh, the Countess of Ol or Ole, uh, was, was uh, remembering uh, Ered Gorgoroth. Absolutely, yeah. Another classic example. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the Countess is suggesting, you know, that this is perhaps an indication that uh, uh, Old Man Willow isn't evil. Um, instead, very protective and misguided. Um, possibly. Possibly. Um, well, let's... Uh, let's take a look and see what we see. Let's, let's, let's keep reading. But uh, again, it's to me the most, one of the really interesting questions about this. Now it happens. The hobbits began to feel very hot. There were armies of flies of all kinds buzzing round their ears, and the afternoon sun was burning on their backs. At last they came suddenly into a thin shade. Great gray branches reached across the path. Each step forward became more reluctant than the last. Sleepiness seemed to be creeping out of the ground and up their legs and falling softly out of the air upon their heads and eyes. Notice what's not described in that first paragraph. I love this. The huge, ginormous willow tree that's right in front of them, right? They don't notice old man willow. There's just like... So the shade... Right, the thin shade that they come into is beneath the canopy of Old Man Willow, but there's no reference to the huge bowl of the tree right there. Right, it's just uh, the great gray branches reaching out above them. Right, they're aware of the shade. Their senses seem to be um, not particularly sharp right here. Right. Um, Jonathan has a great question. Are those flies the only animals ever mentioned in the forest? Well, yeah, so far. there I don't remember there... Were there other insects? Maybe there were other insects? Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway. We'll come back to this. Frodo felt his chin go down and his head nod. Just in front of him, Pippin fell forward onto his knees. Frodo halted. It's no good, he heard Mary saying. Can't go another step without rest. Must have nap. It's cool under the willows. Less flies. Frodo did not like the sound of this. Come on, he cried. We can't have a nap yet. We must get clear of the forest first. But the others were too far gone to care. Beside them, Stam, Sam stood yawning and blinking stupidly. Um, okay. I, by the way, I agree with you, Lady... Shmebuak must have nap uh, is uh, is uh, definitely one of my uh, uh, one of my life quotations from the Lord of the Rings. In fact, I remember uh, way back in like two thousand five uh, when I first got my first Facebook account, and it used to always ask you know like about what your status is. Uh, there were several occasions on which I wrote must have nap, um, but uh, <laughs> anyway, um, okay. Yeah, yeah, Amethor, and their uh, their power bar is totally being sapped, like Old Man Willow in the game. I love the in-game interpretation of Old Man Willow, actually, in that way. Um, so, I want to focus on the Hobbit's experience here, right? 
So first we have the virtual invisibility of Old Man Willow, right? Our first evidence, though it's indirect evidence, is that one of the effects that the spell of Old Man Willow is having on them is for them not to notice Old Man Willow himself, right? Um, It doesn't feature in the description of the world around them, right? It's instead their thoughts are turned entirely... um, are turned entirely inward, right? As they focus only on their own weariness. Um, And notice there's a kind of, there's a rationalization going on here, right? Um, First, they're very hot. There are the flies. The afternoon sun is burning on their backs. They're very aware of these things. And then there's a shade. Right, that's what they're aware of—not the big, huge willow tree, but the shade that the big, huge willow tree. And then, of course, Mary. Um, it's cool under the willows. Less flies, right? Even his grammar uh, uh, deserts him. Right? Should be fewer flies, uh, but less flies, he says. Right? Because that's because that's less syllables than <laughs> fewer flies, and he can barely speak. Um, but. Um, uh, but anyway, um, so again, I'm wanting to focus on the experience of the hobbits, right? Um, Mary feels like this is just coming from him, right? He is hot. He's very sleepy. Let's. Go, it would be very sensible for us to go and have a nap under the willow trees, right? It's cool under the willows. There's fewer flies. Um, Yeah, yeah. And that's interesting to me, because that kind of rationalization is kind of like the effect that the ring has on people's minds. Um, They are under the influence of the song of Old Man Willow. What does the song of Old Man Willow do? It's obviously bringing weariness, right? That uh, that sleepiness which is creeping out of the ground and up their legs and falling softly out of the air upon their heads and eyes. Uh, I love that description. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but notice what happens immediately afterwards, right? Mary seems totally oblivious to what's happening. Mary's reaction seems to be the the reaction of one who is completely under the influence of the spell. But then we get Frodo, who is not fully under its influence. Suddenly Frodo felt sleep, Frodo himself felt sleep overwhelming him. His head swam. There now seemed hardly a sound in the air. The flies had stopped buzzing. Only a gentle noise on the edge of hearing, a soft fluttering, as of a song half-whispered, seemed to stir in the boughs above. Only a gentle noise on the edge of hearing, a soft fluttering, as of a song, half-whispered, seemed to stir in the boughs above. Now, so Frodo can hear something, but he doesn't say, the willow tree is singing a song of power, right? That's not what he says. He hears a faint sound, which could be just the whispering of the willow leaves. Uh, willows do make very gentle, quiet sounds because their their branches are so thin 
uh, and wave in the wind, and their leaves are so tiny, right? They don't make a heavy rustling. They do make this very faint whispering sound, and it's it's still a it's still a simile, right? Um, a soft fluttering as of a song, half whispered, right? So it reminds him of a half whispered song, but that doesn't mean that that's necessarily how he's processing it. He's still more seems to be more aware, right? Mary just thinks this is totally spontaneous. I spontaneously feel tired. I am hot and tired. There is shade under the willows. Let's go there. We'll escape the flies and have a rest, right? Frodo, it's just on the edge of hearing, right? He can almost hear the song. He uses the simile, right? Like it reminds him of singing, but he's not like, wait, the willow is singing, right? He lifted his heavy eyes and saw leaning over him a huge willow tree, old and hoary. This is the first reference, right? He sees it. That also is something that Mary, even Mary's words, right? Remember, Mary said, um, it's cool under the willows, plural, right? Just like vaguely under the trees. He doesn't talk about the big, huge, enormous willow tree that he's going to sit under. Frodo sees it distinguishes it. The huge willow tree, old and hoary, enormous it looked, its sprawling branches going up like reaching arms with many long-fingered hands, its knotted and twisting trunk gaping in wide fissures that creaked faintly as the boughs moved. And that's totally normal. Totally normal for willow trees to look like that. But at least he notices it. Again, he doesn't seem to think much of it, right? Um, that is, he doesn't, he, he's not alarmed by this, um, but at least he does perceive it. So he hears the song, but he doesn't, can't really tell what it is. He sees the willow tree, but he's not really terrified by it or anything. Um, and then the leaves fluttering against the bright sky dazzled him and he toppled over, lying where he fell upon the grass. So he gets just dropped, right? Frodo is overpowered by the song of the Willow Man. So he came closer than Mary, right, to resisting it, even to perceiving it, right, where Mary didn't even seem to, uh, didn't seem to perceive it. Mary and Pippin dragged themselves forward and lay down with their backs to the willow trunk. Behind them, the great cracks gaped wide to receive them as the tree swayed and creaked. They looked up at the gray and yellow leaves, moving softly against the light and singing, They shut their eyes, and then it seemed that they could almost hear words, cool words, saying something about water and sleep. They gave themselves up to the spell and fell fast asleep at the foot of the great gray willow. They hear words, right? But they're already mostly dreaming, right? They're mostly asleep uh, when when they get to that point. Um, So... um, yeah, so, okay. We don't see them resisting like Frodo. We don't even see them perceiving exactly in the way that, um, uh, in the way that Frodo does, perceiving um, the, um, perceiving the willow tree itself, right? They're leaning against it, and the cracks in it are opening up to receive them, Right? But they're fine with that, right? They look up, and but they they can almost 
they can almost hear the words, right? Cool words saying something about water and sleep. Um, by the way, there are several... Um, uh, Jacob was just posting uh, uh, a, a painting, a, an image of Old Man Willow. I dislike pictures of Old Man Willow that have human features. Um, sometimes they make it like the image that you were just posting there. Um, it's a cool image, uh, but it, it gives him a face, gives him like a nose and big old mouth, right? Um, I don't like that. He should look like a tree. He doesn't have human features. Uh, I mean, he doesn't even have more than, he doesn't even have just one mouth, right? Um, but uh, anyway, uh, so the tree has one, right? Um, yeah. Alia Eru says it is interesting how Old Man Willow's means of attack is sub- subjecting the hobbits to the temptation of oblivion, right? Just to, to, to give themselves up. They do submit their own wills to the tree, right? Um, here's my question, though. What's Old Man Willow's plan? What's he doing? What is he gaining? Um, is he going to eat them? Is, is, is he going to digest them? Is that what's happening? Are they food for him? I mean, it's possible, man-eating trees, right? Is he just going to kill them? Why does he ingest the hobbits? Is he going to imprison them? Just keep them locked up? I don't know. I'm not really sure. Um, I agree. Um, Quantiel and the Countess are saying, uh, I think he views them as intruders. He's doing this to get rid of them. Sure, no, but my point is there are lots of ways to do that, right? I mean, he could he could be beating them on the head, right? Um, he could rip them to pieces. He could kill them lots of ways. But he doesn't just kill them. He takes them in. He imprisons them. Pippin is completely inside, right? Um, but he's still alive, as we'll see. Well, let's, 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 let's keep looking at this here. So he sings to the hobbits of water and sleep. Frodo lay for a while. Remember, Frodo's dropped, right? He's lying on the ground. He just keels over where he was standing. Frodo lay for a while, fighting with the sleep that was overpowering him. Then, with an effort, he struggled to his feet again. So here's Frodo winning the fight that Merry and Pippin have already lost. He felt a compelling desire for cool water. A compelling desire. This is clearly coming from the willow, right? So the sleep, part of the water in sleep, Merry and Pippin fell for that right away, right? Mary has, or Frodo has fought off the sleep. So he gets a water compulsion, a compelling desire for cool water. Wait for me, Sam, he stammered. Must bathe feet a minute. Must bathe feet a minute? Seriously? That's your plan, Frodo, to bathe your feet? Now, look, I'm not against foot bathing. I think that's great. But um, it's a little odd, isn't it? Doesn't that seem 
strange. I mean, it's a little tree-ish, actually. Like, I'm going to go dip my feet in the water. Um, I have a theory. I have a theory about this. He feels a compulsion. I, I, I have to believe, under the circumstances, as they're under the power of the willow uh, and the willow tree's enchantment here, I think it's pretty clear that he is... Um, uh, it's, it's Old Man Willow that is compelling this thought of water, especially since it was water in sleep that he was just singing of. So the compulsion seems to come from Old Man Willow. Why would the compulsion take the form of, I must dip my feet in the water? And I think the answer is, he's drinking. That is to say, like, it's a compulsion to drink. Um, like, don't you want to sleep? Don't you want to drink water? Right? And trees, of course, drink water by dipping their feet in the water, right? They put their roots in the water. That's where the willow tree's roots are, right? And they drink deeply of the water through their roots. I think that... The, theory. Theory is that the compulsion to put his feet in the water is a, is a compulsion on the part of somebody who doesn't understand how hobbits drink, right? Um, it would never occur to the willow tree to be like, go dip your face in the water or bring water up to your face, right? Why would it do that, right? You put your feet in the water, obviously, right? Um, so there's a, there's a way in which, again, my theory, a way in which uh, the, you know, Frodo is kind of uh, thinking tree-ish thoughts here, right? Is, uh, is kind of thinking like a willow tree, uh, instead of uh, uh, instead of like a hobbit anymore. Half in a dream, he wandered forward to the riverward side of the tree, where great winding roots grew out into the stream. See, just like that, like gnarled dragonets straining down to drink. He straddled one of these and paddled his hot feet in the cool brown water, and there he too suddenly fell asleep with his back against the tree. Why? Because he's given into the spell too just like Marion Pippin did. Marion Pippin just gave into the sleep part. He gave into the water part. He went down and he's doing the water thing, right? Um, uh, he's, uh, he's, he's put his feet in the water, and then he immediately falls under the spell and falls asleep. Then, our hero. Sam sat down and scratched his head and yawned like a cavern. He was worried. The afternoon was getting late, and he thought this sudden, un this sudden sleepiness uncanny. There's more behind this than sun and warm air, he muttered to himself. Now, Frodo seemed almost aware that there was something else behind it, but he never really seemed aware of it. Merry and Pippin hear a cool voice speaking cool words to them, right? But they're not really aware. They surrender their wills to it. Sam finds this uncanny, right? This is, there's more behind this than sun and warm air. This is an unnatural sleepiness, right? Um, I don't like this great big tree. He can see it, right? Just like Frodo did. Frodo saw it, but didn't react to it. You know, he saw this old, hoary, enormous willow, um, but it, we didn't see any response from Frodo. Sam has a response. I don't like this great big tree. I don't trust it. Hark at it singing about sleep now. This won't do at all. <laughs> I love that's that's a classic Sam line. This won't do at all, right? Uh, so, hark at it singing about sleep now. He can hear the song. He can tell that 
it is a song, and he sees the cause and effect. This tree is singing, and its singing is causing the sleepiness, the uncanny sleepiness, which has suddenly broken over us. This tree is an enemy. I don't trust it. This won't do at all, he says. Um, yeah, several of you are talking about Sam's relationship to plants. Uh, you know, interesting that, you know, Sharon says at least, uh, you know, as Sam is a gardener, he's least affected uh, by the plant magic. Um, yeah, maybe. Uh, you know, he knows the ways of plants and so is not fooled. Um, this won't do at all. Let's keep going. He pulled himself to his feet and staggered off to see what had become of the ponies. He found that two had wandered on a good way along the path, and he had just caught them and brought them back towards the others when he heard two noises, one loud, the other soft but very clear. One was the splash of something heavy falling into the water. The other was a noise like the snick of a lock when a door quietly closes fast. He rushed back to the bank. Frodo was in the water close to the edge, and a great tree root seemed to be over him and holding him down, but he was not struggling. Sam gripped him by the jacket and dragged him from under the root, and then with difficulty hauled him onto the bank. Almost at once he woke and coughed and spluttered. Okay, what does Sam do? First of all, a couple of you were talking... Um, Oh, shoot, I'm forgetting who it was who posted that on the forum. Somebody was talking about this on the forum. Um, how Sam... Asking the, the very excellent question, how does Sam resist, right? What is it, in fact, that leads to... you know Why, why is it that Sam resists the spell when nobody else does, right? And one thing that this person, whom I forget who it was, uh, pointed out was that... Oh, it was Blue Wizard. Thank you. Jonathan, yeah. Um, so Blue Wizard was pointing out um, it d seems to be not a coincidence that Sam is thinking of others and serving others, right? He's tending to the ponies. So this this sort of work that he's doing not, you know, Mary is like, must have nap, right? Uh, Sam is not saying must have nap. Sam is saying must tend ponies, right? He's not thinking about himself and going and, and having a nap under the trees. He's getting the work done, and that that seems to have an effect, right? Um, I agree with that, and I think that's an important thing, but I'm not convinced that that can be the source of it. Rather, it's the result of it. Um, he would not... He In order to tend the ponies, he has to leave... He has to turn his back on Old Man Willow and walk away, right? Because two of the ponies had wandered on a good way along the path. So he has to go past Old Man Willow, down the path they were walking, right? Go past Old Man Willow, catch the ponies and bring them back, right? So he's got to get up on his feet and walk away from Old Man Willow successfully. Presumably, if he were on his own, he could have kept walking. That is, Sam escaped. Already, he's escaped and broken the spell prior to the tending of the ponies, right? Um, anyway, um, Sam's, you know, do we see Sam looking out for Frodo, right? Sam thinking of, of his master first and his master's danger. Uh, yes, though, again, that he doesn't say that, right? Um, 
And of course, he leaves his master behind in, a, in what turns out to be a dangerous position. He does run back in time to rescue Frodo uh, from drowning, which obviously he didn't, you know, he gets back pretty quickly after he hears the plop in the water, right? Um, but uh, anyway, it's... Uh, I don't have the answer. I'm not sure of the answer. We know he was not unaffected by the spell, right? He was yawning and blinking stupidly, right? Meaning he was he was half asleep on his feet, and then he sits down on the ground, just like Frodo keels over, Sam sits, right? But he he breaks out of it. Um, so how? Why? What do we see in him? I, the, the one thing that we see from his dialogue is that he's on to the Willow Man. I go back to Mary's rationalizations, right? Mary felt that all those impulses were coming from him. Frodo was half aware of the compulsion, but he didn't. when he felt this compelling need to get to the water, he wasn't thinking this is coming from the... He's like, I, I have to bathe my feet. I have the impulse to bathe my feet, and it's very, very strong, right? Um, Sam... Hark! Hark at it singing about sleep now. This won't do it all, right? And I think this won't do it all. He's talking to himself in part. Like this sleeping won't do it all, right? He says no to the sleep. Um, the others submitted to the will. They submitted their wills to the will of the willow. <laughs> I'd say that sentence fast a few times. Um, uh, they, um, they submitted their wills to the will of the willow. Um, Sam doesn't, and it's that this won't do at all is the moment when he makes that choice, right? Um, I am not going to listen to the willow singing about sleep. I am not going to do what the willow is telling me to do in his song. I don't trust this great big tree. I'm going to oppose it, to oppose its will. Um, and Catriona, I... I I'm kind of thinking that too. Katrina says, Hobbits of Mary, Pippin and Frodo's social stature probably are used to taking impulsive naps in the afternoon if the mood strikes. Sam's not, because he's used to working. Um, so yes, like there's one of the three of them that works for his living, and who is probably used to working when he's tired and wishes he could lie down and take a nap, right? Um, uh, so I, I, I suspect that that's part of it. But I think, again, we see we see Sam making the choice. And the thing that I find most striking is his awareness. He figures, he sees what's ha- he hears what's happening. Which is what makes Sam's later reaction so fascinating to me uh, in this next passage. So he's just pulled Frodo out from under a root. A great tree root was over him and holding him down in the water and he's not struggling. Right? Do you know, Sam... He said at length, Frodo, of course. The beastly tree threw me in. I felt it. The big root just twisted round and tipped me in. You were dreaming, I expect, Mr. Frodo, said Sam. You shouldn't sit in such a place if you feel sleepy. What's going on here? Sam just said, hark at it singing about sleep now, right? I don't trust this old tree. And it's singing about sleep. And then Frodo says, the tree threw me in. 
and he came around to see that root on top of Frodo. What does he think? Frodo crawled under, like the crawled under the root in the water, right? Um, why this skeptical note from Sam? Why does Sam seem reluctant to believe that he that the tree did that? Right? Um, you shouldn't sit in such a place if you feel sleepy. Because, you know, you fell off. You fell asleep and fell. There must be a natural explanation for this. Seriously? Is that what Sam is Sam is saying here? Um, I don't get it. I don't get how that fits. How you shouldn't sit you shouldn't sit in such a place if you feel sleepy fits with Harkett singing about sleep now the overt acknowledgement of the tree being active and magically active uncanny right that's his word um on the one hand you know in one moment and then his apparent skepticism that the tree would do it in the next um What about the others? Frodo asked. I wonder what sort of dreams they're having. They went round to the other side of the tree, and then Sam understood the click that he had heard. Pippin had vanished. The crack by which he had laid himself had closed together, so that not a chink could be seen. Merry was trapped. Another crack had closed about his waist. His legs lay outside, but the rest of him was inside a dark opening, the edges of which gripped like a pair of pincers. I agree, um, Eleanor, I agree that singing and moving, right, are quite different. But trees don't normally do either one. I mean, again, if the tree is doing one uncanny thing, why couldn't it do another uncanny thing? Um, now, Quantio is suggesting that Sam might have thought that he was dreaming the tree singing, um, the Harkadit singing seems like an underreaction for Sam, unless he was in a trance or dreamlike state, which he was in a kind of dreamlike state, right? I mean, he was stupid with sleep, and you know, Tolkien, of course, here using the word stupid in its in its traditional definition, right? Meaning like as in a stupor, so you know, kind of stunned with sleep. Um, Good, Irindus, yes. Sam has heard and apparently believed reports of walking trees before. <laughs> exactly. Um, he was defending that even in the face of Ted Sandyman, right? Um, so he believes the old stories, whatever Ted Sandyman may say. He perceived that the tree was singing. What's he doing with... So, okay, so here's um, here's a couple theories, right? One... As uh, Matt was just suggesting, he may believe in the stories, but he isn't about to go out of his way to look foolish in front of others, uh, much as he avoided coming out about his belief that he saw an elf while down in the Green Dragon. Yeah, so Matt, good. Theory number one. So, how how can we reconcile these two things? Theory number one. Uh, he does believe. He's not actually skeptical here, but he is unwilling to say so, Right? Um, you know, so he kind of plays it skeptical. I'm not sure I can believe that, though. I'm sure I can buy that theory, because Frodo himself 
has just said the big brute twisted round and tipped me in, right? So he's not attesting his belief in uncanny things in the face of people who are disbelieving, right? He is, um, I mean, Frodo, so he's resisting, like, you know, Frodo has just said, the tree just tipped me in. Sam could totally be like, oh, yeah, to- and he was singing. I heard him singing, right, this tree. Um, they seem to be on the same, uh, on the same wavelength there. Um, yeah. Okay, another possibility. Lincoln suggests the possibility that he doesn't really believe in either case, that the first time he's speaking metaphorically, Sam is, when he says, Harkin, it's singing about sleep now. Um, he doesn't really believe that it's actually singing. Um, he's just uh, sort of... Use, that's just the metaphor that he's using to describe this, like, impulse to sleepiness that is associated with the sound of the willow. Um... But I'm not sure Lincoln I can buy that either. Um, and the reason I can't buy that is he has just observed the uncanniness of the sleepiness. There's more behind this, he says, than sun and warm air, right? Um, he does not believe that there is a natural explanation for their sleepiness. And then he says, Harkett is singing about sleep now. This is, it is uncanny. It is unnatural, right? Um, it's not due to natural cause. It's not merely attributable to natural causes. And the willow tree is singing about sleep, right? The willow tree is this, I don't trust that tree. I don't like it. I don't trust it. It is the call. It is the source of the uncanniness. Um, so I, so I, I have a hard time believing that he, he does seem to believe, at least believe something, right, about the willow tree there at the beginning. So I can't believe that he is skeptical in both cases either. So, um, another theory. Again, how to, how to reconcile these two things. Tony's theory. I think he doesn't want to frighten or panic Frodo by joining in. That seems quite... Po- oh, yeah, no, don't worry about that, Mr. Frodo, right? Um, I'm sure you were not just, like, a tree didn't just attempt to murder you, right? Because that would be really scary, and then we would all be in trouble, right? So is this Sam, in in other words, taking a sort of a leadership role with Frodo, right? Um, he doesn't want to worry Mr. Frodo. So he's going to suppress his knowledge of the uncanniness, his recognition of the uncanniness of the whole situation, the fact that this tree, which he didn't trust, almost certainly would have, right? So let's just, let's just downplay this and move on, right? That I could buy. That I could buy. Um, yeah, I guess Julia says, no, no trees murdering folks here. No, no, nothing to worry about. Let's just move along. Um, yeah, gravity says are possibly the kind of lie one tells themselves about real dangers. Yes, it might not just be self-sacrificially thinking of Frodo. He might be uh, trying to convince himself as well that there's uh, nothing to be afraid of. That seems that seems possible. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, Frodo's response. What about the others? I wonder what sort of dreams they are having. If we take this as Sam or Frodo accepting Sam's skeptical response, oh no, you were just dreaming, Mister. Oh, okay, yeah, I was just dreaming. Didn't really try to drown me, right? 
I was just dreaming. If we believe that Frodo believes that, right? Well, maybe. Okay, then he could say, oh, okay, let's, let's, uh, oh, I had a dream. Let's see if Merry and Pippin are having dreams too. Um, I don't think so. Yeah, JJ, I, I read that as Frodo being a little bit sarcastic too, or at least a little wry, right? Um, I just had a dream which manifested itself in like, there was a tree root on top of me, pushing me down into the water, right? That Sam had to pull me out from under. Uh, so, uh, if that was my dream, let's see what dreams Marion, let's make sure Marion Pippin aren't having equally vivid and terrifying dream. Right. Um, yeah. So, um, I think this is, So, Tony, this would fit with your theory, right? If Sam is saying, basically, I know that uncanny things are happening here, but um, let's not freak out, right? So let's, um, I expect you were dreaming, right? Let's at least do lip service to the non-terrifying naturalistic explanation, even though I don't really believe it. And Frodo basically sort of wryly being like, yeah, okay, right, right, of course, we're, we're, we're saying this is dreams, right? Okay, let's go see what dreams Merry and Pippin are having, right? So that he acknowledges what Sam is doing, but neither one of them are really buying it. Um, that, uh, that seems to me possible, um, Oakwig and somebody else earlier was also suggesting that maybe this is a you know Sam's mind is being muddled by uh, by the song of the willow you know by the willow man's magic. I don't think that either, and the reason I don't think that is that we don't see Sam certainly at this point now. He was being affected by the willow song before in his yawning and blinking stupidly, right? But he's not being affected by the willow now. Sam, when Sam goes to get the ponies, when he turns his will against the willow and he says, you know, this won't do it all, and he's going to go collect the ponies and then he's going to rescue Mr. Frodo, he's fine. He's not sleepy anymore. Frodo, when Frodo is pulled out from under the root and rescued from drowning, he is not under the influence of the willow anymore. He now remembers it clearly, and neither one of them seem tempted to sleep at all now. Um, so... Yeah, so I think that this is a almost a kind of banter between them. Like, they're agreeing not to freak out about what's happening here, right? Um, yeah, uh, Lyrlen, it is kind of like comforting a child, and somebody else was, was comparing to that in the, in, the, in the Discord chat as well. Yeah, that kind of thing, I agree. Um, Frodo and Sam beat first upon the tree trunk where Pippin had lain. Then they struggled frantically to pull open the jaws of the crack that held poor Merry. It was quite useless. "'What a foul thing to happen!' cried Frodo wildly. "'Why did we ever come into this dreadful forest? I wish we were all back at Crick Hollow.' He kicked the tree with all his strength, heedless of his own feet. A hardly perceptible shiver ran through the stem and up into the branches. The leaves rustled and whispered, but with a sound now of faint and far-off laughter. Um, I love that, right? You know, when you... Because, of course, you can see this happening, right? It's like an imitation of what really happened. So if you, if you, if you hit... 
if you like beat on or kick the trunk of a of a big tree, you're not going to affect it, right? You're not going to break it down or sweat, push it over, or probably even make it sway. Um, but the vibrations of your kicking against it is going to make the topmost branches kind of, you know, jiggle a little bit, right? Um, so you will be able to send kind of uh, shivers up into the branches when you do that. Um, but of course, this is not, you know instead of just being the the impact of Frodo's kicks, it's 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 an it's an actual response from Old Man Willow, right? It is his uh, his laughter, uh, the the faint and far off laughter of the Willow. He's not even trying to ensorcel them anymore, right? He's not he's not trying to uh, to, to he's not singing anymore. He stopped singing, um, and now he's just laughing at them. So I, you know, it's still like the ripples in the tree, you know, like the 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 shivering in the trees are an effect of your kick, even though you're not really accomplishing very much. Um, so his laughter, of course, is a consequence of Frodo's kick, uh, a derisive reaction. Um, Frodo's words here. Um, what a foul thing to happen. is really interesting to me. Um, earlier on, Lincoln, I think it was you who were saying that Sam's reaction before, Sam's uh, harken at singing about sleep now, seems like a uh, a serious underreaction on Sam's part. Um, you, again, you'd think he'd be a little bit more freaked out, maybe, in that moment. Um, maybe. But look at the reaction here. Right? They're panicking, um, but uh, what a foul thing to happen. Why did we ever come into this dreadful forest? I wish we were all back at Crick Hollow. None of those statements are anything like, or really translate to anything like, holy cow, a tree is eating my friends. This tree is eating Mary right now, right? Um, they don't, they're not, they underreact. And again, they, aware of the fact that, like, losing two of your friends, uh, you know, two of your friends dying in the forest, that's bad, right? And everybody can agree that that's bad. But, um, (laughs) he would react the same way if they, like, fell off a cliff and broke their necks. What a foul thing to happen. Why did we come? I wish we were all back. Right, you know what he's again. He's not responding to this simple uncanniness of it. Um, yeah, Oakwig, I agree. They're not hysterical comments. But again, we've seen this all the way through the old forest. Um, Frodo was aware of the sing of the power of the menace of the trees. Right, he believed in that. They all, you know, these trees do shift says Mary, right? Yeah, these trees are walking around. They just dropped the branch right behind you when you were singing. Um, <laughs> the blue wizard says, it sounds more like a reaction to getting a flat tire. What a foul thing to happen! Yeah. Um, yeah, it it, 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 it does. Um, yeah, so it's another reason to, I'm just saying it's another reason why I'm not inclined to view Sam's apparent underreaction uh, to the singing tree 
uh, as evidence that he doesn't really believe that it's singing or is only doing it metaphorically. Um, They've all heard stories about uncanny things like this. They all believe the stories. We were looking at Mary with that. Mary seemed skeptical. He didn't really believe necessarily that the trees moved about. These trees do shift, right? Like, he comes to that belief. Um, But... Uh, anyway, so I think, I think we, we see that coming around here, um, uh, and coming into play. There's a sense in which Mary, or Frodo and Sam both seem kind of equipped for this reveal, right? Neither one of them are just freaked out like a totally skeptical person. Both of them are like, okay, um, this is a foul, this is a bet, this is a, this is a misfortune, Right? Being victimized by an animate tree is a pretty serious piece of misfortune, uh, but it's um, but it's not that big a deal. I mean, it's not like it doesn't change their lives or anything. It doesn't change their 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 worldviews, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> JJ is thinking of the uh, thinking of uh, Frodo longing to be back at Crick Hollow, where doubtless they would be attacked by Black Riders, uh, in parallel to uh, the Israelites in the desert longing to be back in Egypt, where they were slaves. Uh, that, that's interesting. That's that's a fun parallel. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Ah, it's getting late. Nah, okay. I'm not going to quite finish. That's okay. So what are they going to do? How are they going to respond and what's going to happen? We'll pick up here next time uh, with one of my favorite Sam Gamgee lines uh, in his response. Uh, Another Sam Gamgee line that I personally quote all the time. Um, But anyway... Uh, so we'll end here with their awareness of the tree, their comfort, in a sense, with the uncanniness of the situation, even though, of course, they're upset about what has happened to their friends. But I want to be, don't forget, I want to be looking more at what is the tree doing, right? What is the, um, what is the plan of the tree? What's its What's its plan for Mary and Pippin here, for the lot of them, right? Um, So we'll come back and we'll look at that. And, of course, we're going to get uh, Tom Bombadil's entrance. Not unless sure we're going to get all the way through the very end of the chapter next time, but we'll at least get to some Tom Bombadil uh, and the beginning of his verses uh, next time. So that's what we'll do next week. Uh, now, tonight, it's field trip time, so I'm going to uh, sign off and say thanks to uh, uh, our my Twitch viewers who have been following along on... Uh, no, not my Twitch viewers. My Twitter viewers who have been following along on Twitter Live. Thanks for joining me there. I'm going to turn this off as we do our... Lotro field trip this evening. You can switch to our Twitch channel, uh, twitch.tv slash signumu, uh, and we will. You can pick us up there for the uh, uh, for the uh, our in-game field trip tonight. So goodbye to the Twitter folks. All right, and I can't get a deep enough voice for this character.
<laughs> All right. Is, I want to bring my my elf character here to show you. Oh, no way! Hang on a sec. Oh, Tin Fang Warble, very good. Excellent. <laughs> Tin Fang Warble is one of my favorite characters. And he's a he's a minstrel, of course. Of course. Do you have a flute? Tell me you play the flute. I, have, I don't have a flute yet. Okay. You've got to get a flute. Yes. Yes. Oh, the hoot. Oh, the hoot. How he trillips on his flute. <laughs> oh, the flute of Tin Fang Warble. Yeah. Uh, I still think that Oh, the hoot. Oh, the hoot. May be one of my favorite Tolkien poetry lines ever. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to beat that. It really is. <laughs> These elves, they make them very ballet-like. Notice how, you know, everything they do is, like, super, super, you know, graceful. Yeah. And when they, when they jump off things, they do, like, a somersault at the end. They do a somersault at the end? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So that you break anyway. your neck and not your ankles? Right. Yeah, right. that's good. Right. Yeah. That's good. So, um... So tonight we are off to Evendim again. Yay! Excellent. Yes, we're going to go back to Evendim. So I was tempted to go to see Old Man Willow tonight, but although it's going to take us many weeks to get through Old Man Willow and Tom Bombadil, uh, we can <laughs> we can definitely do both in one field trip. Um, to, so, um, yeah, I'm going to save Old Man Willow till when we go to see Tom Bombadil as well, so we can do both of them at one time. If we have any hunters in the group who could uh, port people to Tinadir, which would be your even dim guide, that would be awesome. Nice cloak too. Oh, you like that in that nice? Actually, I dyed it. I dyed it black. It comes in like a sea green background. Yeah, black is. Isn't that a gorgeous cloak? Oh, it's much. Like, yeah, really? so you got the two trees with the sun and two moon. Trees, sun yeah. And moon. Yeah. Wow, that's it's great. Really, it's really amazing. Yeah. And uh, when you do your elf intro, be sure to look at uh, Narian's and Isildur's breastplates. Oh, yeah. That's all, That's all I'm going to say. Okay, about that. cool. Cool. And check out Kyrdan, too. We will have a chat about that afterwards. Oh, yeah. Okay. Kindly knows what I'm talking about there because I've complained about it a couple of times. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. All right. So is, does any, if anybody uh, is a hunter who can, poor people, come on up here. Uh, to the uh, stage. Oh, great, Tristan, thanks. Um, and then folks, uh, either go ahead and send them a tell if you want to be included in the um, uh, fellowship, and then they'll port you to uh, Tinadir, which is where we're starting tonight. Yes. Yeah. If you have, uh, if you got milestones, use them. If you got uh, horses, a horse can get you there, then do it that way, or however you want to get there. But that's where we're going to start is in Tinadir. Okay, great. And bring your bring your water wings. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, I'm gonna. Have you got a way to get there? I got a milestone. Uh, I, I still have the uh, okay. Hiking's Crossing milestone, so I think I'll go there. I go there. Okay. Uh, and I can either ride or uh, travel. Yeah, you can get, get a, a horse, horse from there. All right. I hope you guys. So everybody that needs to needs to get a lift, we've got Amathorn here. Thank you very much, and Turstan, who can port people in a fellowship if you need a fellowship. Turstan, if you would go ahead and add me. How can I be of service? Um, since since I'm a minstrel, I can't port. Okay. 
There we go. And just swift travel from there. All right. So I think... Amethorn, it says, send Amethorn a tell if you need a... I'm right here. This is me, right here. I'm right here. Me, right next to you. Um, send Amethorn a tell if you need a fellowship... Okay. Bunch of people here at Tinadir already. What do you need? Okay. Has everybody gotten included that needs to be included in a... Last call. Last call. Choo-choo. Train's leaving. Okay. Okay, Turstan, hit it. Okay. So where we are, looking at the map of Evendim, and continuing the exploration of this region, of the region of Evendim, and thinking about... Sort of the their, the adaptation and sub you know sort of extended subcreation here of Middle Earth based on what we know and the links to the to the story. Evendim is all about Arnor. This was the heart of the Kingdom of Arnor. So we already uh, were exploring Anuminus last time two weeks ago. We saw the High King's Crossing with a huge enormous statue of Elendil, doubtless posthumous, uh, which sort of overseas, if not actually guarding the way in from the Brandywine. Um, Anuminus, the city of the kings, where the first uh, kings of Arnor dwelt prior to the breakup of uh, the kingdom of Arnor. Um, so we're gonna we're up here now in Tinadir, so we're on the first of, uh, of a few little islands. Uh, we're going to look at several of the islands in the, uh, in the lake today. Uh, and we're going to do some very uh, even-dim thematic swimming here today uh so so yeah so we're going to be we're going to be seeing that so we start off here this in game is one of the major dunadine camps right so the uh the the dunadine are all about this place which again is to me, really fascinating, right? Because one of the things that you have uh, within the Lotro world, right, is they've tried to imagine something which we get so few glimpses of um, in the books themselves, that is, the culture of the Dunedine of Eriador, right? We know they've been living without a kingdom. They've just been living under chieftains. But of course, we also know that the Dunedine are very aware of their heritage, right? Um, and so, the, you know, the, the Dunedine, the rangers, they are living in some ways, you know, based on what we learned, they're living in some ways selfless lives, right? Guarding other peoples. Think of Halberd's words uh, to uh, Aragorn, in the book, right, about their long labors in guarding the Shire and, you know, but how, you know, of great worth of the Shire folk, um, how, you know, he's like, oh, it was totally worth it, right? Uh, all that time that we spend um, thanklessly protecting the Shire. So one thing that we know that the Rangers of Eriador are doing is, you know, sort of selflessly help going about and helping to protect the other people who mostly give them scornful names and not only don't thank them, but don't trust them uh, for what they do. 
But we also know, as I said, that they're very aware of their own heritage. They know about Arnor. They know who Aragorn should be. Um, and they know the significance of these regions. Think about when uh, Aragorn talks about Dead Men's Dyke, right? Um, Barlaman Butterbur refers to Dead Men's Dyke. He doesn't know what it really is, right? Aragorn knows what it is. You know, he knows that it's Fornos. We're not in Fornost, but... Um, he still, you know, the Dúnedain clearly still think of this whole region in terms of its history, of their history with it, of the history of the of the Numenorean kingdom of Arnor. Um, that kingdom is no more, but they remember it. So, um, what do we see in the Rangers? We see, of course, the the great running joke. Uh, in Lotro is that we always see rangers sitting next to campfires places because they're always uh, which is appropriate, right? In the sense that they're they're always on lookout, right? Um, that is, so we see them posted at strategic places look because they're, they're not like a military force. We're not going to see them uh, in great force in most places. So when they're guarding and looking out and watching frontiers and stuff, it is going to be more isolated um, um more more isolated uh, spots where they're looking out and communicating with each other rather than actually, um, you know, taking up arms in most cases. Um, but of course, the other thing that we see them doing is in, in Evendim in particular, the focus here is on the preservation and reclamation of their history. Enuminous being, again, the whole sort of point of Enuminous, the only thing left in Enuminous is a, is, a, is a place of ruins. Evendim, the whole Evendim region is a place of ruins. Um, because it's been deserted for a long time, uh, even before the fall of Arnor, right? When the, or sorry, of the, the fall of Arthedain, when the North Kingdom officially dies. Um, Arnor has already, in a sense, been dead. It was still a kingdom, um, but it's already been divided, right, among the three different Dúnedain kingdoms, Arthedain, Cardolan, and Rudaur. Um, by the time the kingship moves, you know, the, or the, 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 the throne moves away uh, from, uh, from Anuminus and off to Fornost, the, the, the kingdom is already dying, right? Um... And this region is already becoming a, a relic, becoming a memory, right, of the greater peaceful kingdom that was initially established here by the lake. Uh, remember how we were looking at the lack of defenses in Enuminous, right? The lack of walls and fortifications on the way in. Um, it was never a stronghold. It was a, a lakeside city, right? It was a it was a, a city of beauty and of peace. That part of the history of Arnor has already died, uh, even before Fornost falls and the kingdom officially ceases. So, um, the storyline that Lotro develops, the overarching sort of storyline of the Dúnedain of, uh, of Evendim here, is one of preservation, right? Um, their, um, um, their focus on the history, on their history, the history of the Dúnedain, the history of the of the North Kingdom. They're the only ones who remember. And so, of course, they have two great enemies, right? The one, their enemies are the, the treasure hunters, right? There are these vagrant people that come wandering through because ruins to them, just, you know, stories of the ancient 
wealth and wonders uh, of the kings of old leaves them leads them to come and 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 search for treasures and and things to take away right stealing the heritage destroying the heritage of the Numenorians um, <clears throat> so the Dunedain are trying to resist them then of course similarly we well not similarly then in addition we have the Angmarim the the people of Angmar who have invaded. Um, and to look at the map again here for a second, uh, and to go out here one time. So Evendim is right here, just north of the Shire. Angmar is up over here, right? So it's not like it doesn't border directly onto Evendim. This is a, this is an incursion down uh, that the followers of the sort of the modern kingdom of Angmar uh, are making, and they've invaded Anuminus. And so we have, as we were seeing last time, this constant battle between the followers of Angmar uh, and the followers of of uh, of and you know and the the last of the Dunedain. Anuminus is the one place where we see the the rangers gathering together in military action, right? Because they refuse to give up the ruins of Anuminus uh, to the Angmarim, right? Because that's like to have the North Kingdom fall again. Um, so it's like a combination of the decay of Anuminus with the invasion of Angmar, which is, of course, what ended up destroying Fornost and the end of the of the kingdom, the end of, of, uh, of the final end of the North Kingdom. Um, so... Yeah. Anyway, so so that's uh, um, that's why the main camp of the Numenorians is up here on Tin- on <clears throat> Tinadir, not right next to Anuminus because of the incursion of the Angmarim. It's not safe enough down there. But this is where they where they gather and they have there, as you guys were talking about. Um, they have uh, over here, this is why this particular Dunedain camp comes with a pottery sorting station over here, right? Because we're curating relics, right? We've recovered relics that have been captured and taken by the uh, by the, the treasure hunters, right? And we're carefully cataloging and sorting these things um, because they're like half defenders of the frontier and half museum curators, right, uh, trying to protect the collections and prevent uh, prevent people from making off with stuff. So uh, that's, and of course you can help them out in lots of ways. Uh, there are lots of quests to help out with the preservation of artifacts uh, down here in Evendim uh, from the guys here. This is the main Dunedon here, Kalinglad, right? Uh, the bald guy with romantic delusions. Um, uh, more about that when you play the epic quest line. Um, old friend of Aragorn from childhood, we're told, right? Um, I love the the storylines that get developed here. Um, and uh, the stories of the relationship of Elendil uh, with uh, the lake here. Uh, I actually quite like uh, all of those things. Um I'm interested in this ruin in which they have built their central camp. Um, I'm not sure what this ruin was. And first of all, it's interesting to me that this ruin is much more ruinous than, say, that over there, right? This is the Tower of Tinadir, right? This is the main uh, house, Remember that most of these other, you know, as we were talking about several weeks back, most of these other little 
building clusters that we see in various places uh, up on the hills and stuff around the lake are summer homes, right? They're they're um, living spaces um, for like great families uh, of Arnor, um, and uh, yeah, this is Anathorn. This is basically a Lendl's vacation home that we were looking at from his throne, you know, from near his throne room in Anuminus last time. Um, so I'm not sure what this building was. It has a little door, a comparatively little door down there, big arches in the middle, right? A bigger door here on this end. Was this one building? Was this a couple buildings? I'm not sure what it was and why it's more ruinous than the rest of the stuff, which is more intact. Um, JJ's wondering if it was partially, if it's partially buried hard to tell um yeah was this door you know hot taller before maybe i'm not sure i don't think it need be necessarily it could be but i don't think it need be um yeah Just examining the wall here. I don't think that gap is is intentional. Anyway, yeah. So not sure exactly what these ruins uh, were uh, were designed to be here, but yeah. Turston says most of the stuff around the lake are like the Roman villas that were scattered all over Roman England. Yes, yes, I like that comparison. Um, you d- that you did get like that. What do you get in England, right? Um, old Roman walls and old Roman buildings and baths, right? Like in Bath. So, um, yeah, you get um, you get exactly that kind of thing, right? The pl- the big places that the 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 wealthy once built, right, out in their country homes. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Anyway, let's go over to, uh, let's go over to Tinnit here. Let's go over to that. Uh, hang on, we'll come to, come to the boats here in a minute. Okay. Now this is this grand cathedral-like place. But this, we're told, was the sort of private home of Elendil. Okay, got the Numenorean stars here on the door. I don't think I've ever looked at these in my ultra-high graphics. These are pictorial. What do we get here? What scenes are depicted here? Four different scenes, right? Okay. <gasps> okay, these are four guys carrying something on their shoulders. 
Something that looks vaguely like the Ark of the Covenant, but presumably isn't. And then a bunch of guys, six guys, standing in the background, looking on. Okay. What are they carrying? What's in the cask? And there are hinges here! Oh, it finally makes sense. I always wondered what these big, huge metal plates were, where, sh where windows should be. But that's the answer. They're like copper shutters. Right. Okay. All right. All right, okay. All right. So these are four guys in robes carrying something on their shoulders. Hmm. Okay. And this is a guy... It's really hard to make out. A guy standing in the foreground. You can see both of his hands. A guy... Another guy standing right behind him. Carrying a shield or a bowl. Then we have these two guys, one of whom seems to be handing something to somebody else. And there's weapons, an axe maybe, or a banner up there. And then People standing in the background while this one guy in front is sort of stooping over and there's another dude behind him. Huh. This is really interesting. Is it a history of Numenor? They could be Numenorian images. Okay, so let's let's think logically here. Uh, these are images on the like summer home of Elendil, right? Now that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be contemporary with Elendil. They could conceivably have been built afterwards because, you know, the line of Elendil lived here for eight generations, so it could depict Elendil and Isildur-related scenes. Um, for instance, the first thing that I thought of when I saw this third one, the one where the one guy seems to be handing something to somebody else. The taller guy seems to be handing something to the shorter guy. And there's, like, weapons and stuff in the background. Um, this uh, made me think of Isildur, uh, you know, giving the shards of Narsil and stuff to to, to, to his, um, you know, to his, to his squire, to, you know, to Octar. Uh, Which, again, would be 
supposed to end up, obviously, but it could be. Um, okay, wait. Ronnie says the orb and scepter of Anuminus. Where's the orb and scepter of Anuminus? Which one? Oops. Which one? But you've got to think they have to be images either from the Elender Isildur era or from Numenor itself. And in a sense, Numenor itself would make more sense um, if Elendil built it, right? So if this was actually built in the time of Elendil, Numenor would make more sense. Hmm. In which case, we'd have what? The rise of Sauron and the fall of Numenor? I think there'd be more ocean involved if we were getting the fall of Numenor. Um, what's this cross down here? Why is there a cross or an X? Huh. I have no idea. Sorry, this, I had no intention. This is not how I meant to spend the field trip. But this is a mystery, right? What could they be carrying in that cask? I mean, what are candidates for them to carry in? When were they ever carrying something that looked like the Ark of the Covenant? With people standing around in the background. Is it a funeral in the cask? It's a coffin, Matthew Hirschenroder asks. That is a good question. That was my first thought. I th thought the proportions weren't quite right. Um, people standing around in the background, it could be a public funeral, uh, them standing around solemnly, you know. Um, it could just be perspective. It could. It could. I'm totally willing to think that that's a coffin. Whose coffin? And what do you think the most likely direction of the narrative would be? Probably top to bottom, right? Or would it be bottom to top? Could it be... So if it's about death, 
Could it be not depicting particular historical moments? It could be something like, if we read it bottom to top, it could be something like, the king is getting old. The king hands the scepter and ring of Barahir to his heir. Then the king dies. You know, like, not resentfully, right? And then, what, this is the heir, I guess? Right? And then here's the new king. So this, you know, these four panels celebrate the continuity of the royal line. Right? Um... Yeah, the king is dead, long live the king sort of deal. Yeah. Um, that would make sense for the coffin then to be the like penultimate one, right? Um, especially if it's celebrating like the appropriate kind of death for kings to die, like the Aragorn style of death. Um, the, you know, I'm going to give up the throne. Let's check the other panels over here. It's over here. Same things. Okay. Same story. Wow, this is a revelation, i got to tell you, because I have had trouble with these metal panels. More, No, it's not the reflecting pool I'm interested in. Same ones over there. Okay. So they're presumably all around the building. That means most likely... I'm going to fall off this cliff. This seems that most likely... Yeah, you can see over there, same panels. Yep, okay. So that means this must be, in some sense, a self-contained story on these four panels, since the four panels are repeated and they're not uh, supplemented by additional stories. The top is just decorative, like the border. And the bottom is the stars of Numenor, which are lovely. Um... <laughs> There's one set of panels for every king who died and left an heir. Um, yeah, so Druid's saying if this is Elendil's actual home, it would have been put in, put in during his lifetime. Yes, now the panels might not necessarily have been crafted during his lifetime. Um, but, you know, the whole, like, death of the king thing, I mean, it seems a little morbid for your summer home, right? But, but you know, morbidity is... Um, uh, is the whole idea of something being overly morbid, right? Is based upon the idea of, like, the corruption of the attitude towards death. Let's see. Violeth was suggesting that these ones over here are bigger. We can get closer to it anyway. Does this look like a woman in the back in the middle? This one just makes me think of the Stations of the Cross because this looks like this looks like a big old, you know, life-size cross that he's carrying. I don't understand the X here. Uh, 
Yeah, exactly, uh, Torah Martha, and that's just what I was thinking. Desire for eternal life is the sign of the corruption. Oh, that's like where things, where like morbidity comes in, right? The acceptance of death is the mark of the good guys. So would Elendil have had, you know, this idea of like peaceful and hopeful succession, um, you know, carved on his summer home? Yeah, sure, maybe, maybe. Yeah, the Countess says, this looks like this guy back here teaching the guy in the front how to play golf using the cross as a club. I I see that. I do see that. Um, uh, Mike thinks that this is definitely somebody who is captured or detained at the bottom. Possibly. Uh, Those could be chains, right? Um, All right, Tirson says we can see the, we can see them better in the back. Hang on, I'm gonna dismount here. All right, let's go around the building. Let's see over here. Some more panels in the back here. Ooh, are those the same ones? Yes, they are. Okay. Well, I don't know that they're clearer. They're a little bigger. Well, hang on. This one looks quite different. I now think these guys are fighting. Yeah, this doesn't look like a peaceful handoff anymore. This looks like combat now. Doesn't that look a little bit more combat-like? If we read them top to bottom, and if this Mike is a prisoner, right, then we'd have the fight and then the captivity. So why the casket? And who's the dude? And what is that? A table? Okay, Countess is thinking about our Pharazon capturing Sauron. See, I was thinking about our Pharazon too, because remember we're told that that's something even the faithful, though they're not big our Pharazon fans in particular, still remember with pride the glory of the Numenorean fleet that captures Sauron, right? See if we get any better views.
Okay, now on the north side. Ooh, these are reversed. Mirror reversed. Those are really hard to see from all the way up here. Let's see. Let's go over to the west side. The casket holds the Ark in stone. There they are again. Pretty high up, though. Yeah, I can't really see those very well at all. Can I? Can we climb up there? No, we can't. Oh well. Hmm. It is interesting that they're mirror reversed. No, I can't make out much more here. Huh. Yes, okay, so, um, several of you are suggesting that we ask the, we ask the game developers. That takes all the fun out of it. I'm keen to guess. I like the Sauron and Arpharazon theory, but I can't fit the casket into it. Who's the dead guy if it's Arpharazon? Okay, Crooked Heart says the casket one could be men standing outside a building with weapons and other men standing on the walls defending it. And then what are these guys doing? Walking around it like. Like uh, Joshua at the Battle of Jericho with the Ark of the Covenant going before. They're going to sound their trumpets after walking around seven times. Um, I mean, it's possible, but those guys are distinctly all carrying that. Whoa. <laughs> those guys are distinctly all carrying uh, the um, this thing on poles in the middle of them. Um, hmm. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure I can buy that. It's either a special thing that's being carried, like in a casket, or it's actually a casket with a corpse in it. 
Is it a corpse of an elf on a pole? <laughs> Says Deathman, thinking of Celebrimbor. No, no, it's not Celebrimbor's corpse being held above the advancing armies of Sauron like a banner. Ah, uh, no. Is the ashes of the tree? I doubt it. <laughs> Numenorean d- dirt to be buried with. Gleo here. What, what is it? What are they like? Dracula? Um, <laughs> they, have to, they have to lie in the dirt of their of their home. Um, a box of Palantiri. <laughs> okay, so people are saying we should move on. Yeah, but we haven't solved it. I'm not convinced. Hmm. A payment. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Is it a payment? So it's treasure. Like, represents the carrying of treasure. Could represent the carrying away of treasure. Yeah, Pontin was just thinking the same thing. Could be, could they, they could be carrying gold. Yeah, okay, sure. That panel to indicate, like, the, the transfer of wealth, right? Treasure, booty, something, you know, from one place to another. So, tributes, okay. Maybe tributes. Okay, right, all right. Okay, so I, I, I like the way that we I, I like this thought here. The tributes of the men of Middle-earth to Numenor. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Got it. Got it, yeah. Um, exactly, Julia. No, I love this theory. Julia's theory is a great theory. Okay, so the theory is that it represents the evolution of the new of the Numenorians from benefactors to slavers, and actually, Julia, I would argue, to slaves. Right. So, okay. So, we could do it this way. The top panel represents the Numenorians in their strength and glory. Right. Yes. Oh, yeah, Julia. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. See what's at the feet of the dude. Right, whoever the central dude is, who represents like he's Joe Numenorian, right? Um, look at look at this. That's plants growing, agriculture. That's what this thing is. He's, it's like seeds. He's sowing seeds. This is the Numenorians teaching the men of Middle Earth agriculture, right? Benevolent Numenorians. That's totally. Oh yeah, right, I'm sold. I'm sold. So this is the Numenorians. To the men of Minoworth, see those guys in the background? There's that, like, crouched-over dude in the background with a little, like, bowl or something, right? Gathering the fruits from the... Okay, totally. Got it. Okay, so this is Joe Numenorian teaching the men of Minoworth to grow. And then, but now, we have the wealth and treasure being extracted. Now we have tribute being brought to the Numenorians, and these are probably the Numenorians back here, standing in a row, and they've got weapons and stuff now. So now they are a threat, and the people of Middle Earth have to bring uh, have to bring the tribute to the Numenorians. It's the next stage, right? Now we have uh, we have war and oppression, 
right? This is the Numenorians as slavers coming to to uh, captivate and enslave uh, the men of Middle Earth, and then, and then, the bottom one. See this guy, the dude who's in chains. I think is the king, right? So this is the king of Numenor, and this is Sauron behind him. Uh, so he is being chained, and in, so the king of Numenor is being, at least symbolically, enslaved in turn by Sauron, right? Um, so this shows the whole sort of arc of the Numenorean story from their benevolence at the beginning through their own downfall, right? How their own rise to pride and arrogance and cruelty and dominion of the people of Middle-earth led them in turn to be dominated and enslaved by Sauron, which ultimately led to their fall and the destruction of Numenor. So why exactly? It's not glorifying our Pharazon. It's cautioning against becoming him. Yes. So why does Elendil have this carved on big old copper panels on his summer home? Because it's a cautionary tale, which is totally relevant to a Numenorean king in Middle-earth, right? What is your relationship with the peoples of Middle-earth, right? What you're going to how are things going to be? What's the story of Anuminus going to be? Is Anuminus, is Arnor going to retell the story of Numenor? Are they going to go through this same progression, right? Uh, or are they are they not? Are they going to learn their lesson, right, and not do this? Okay, that works. I like it. I absolutely like it. That's okay. All right, I'm I'm convinced. I still can't figure out what this cross thing is. But uh, that's okay. These must be like the faithful in the background, looking on with concern. Yep. Okay. Got it. Yep. All right. Whew. Oh, good work, people. That actually, that's fantastic. That's, that's, who was, was the critical suggestion there? All kinds of kudos for that. I'm not sure I would have thought of that at all. Um, uh, yeah, Julia, that was you. The evolution of the Numenorians from benefactors. Uh, yes, and and the Countess of Olay was talking about making the men of Middle-earth, uh, about the tribute, right, and the plunder. Yeah. yeah, Pontine was talking about them carrying gold, right, that's where it all came from. Yeah, yeah, excellent, excellent. Good, good. Good team effort, people, good team effort. Okay, um, love it, love it. Um, okay. Well, I think that's, uh, that's good. (laughs) We don't have time for much else, but that was totally worth it. How awesome was that? Okay. The copper panels on the exterior of Tinder. I never even noticed that those things had pictures on them before. Oh man. Okay. Well, for good measure, before we go, uh, let's, uh, let's run inside just to make sure there aren't any other images on the interior of the building. But as I recall, the interior of the building is not as exciting. Of course, I never thought the outside of the building was that exciting either. Okay, so we've got these well-preserved 
uh, Numenorean images, right? These are the Numenorean symbols, the ship and the star, right? We're looking at this within Enuminous itself before. We've got these lovely Numenorean banners with the seven stars and then the waves of the sea, you know, suggesting uh, the sea there. Okay, and then we're coming up here, and this is just designs. I don't see any images here. Nothing really on the doors, right? No. And then, hey, look, it's presumably a Lendil with, uh, oops, we're swimming, we're swimming, um, with an unbroken sword. Interesting, yeah, a Lendil with an unbroken sword. Um, but we've seen him with that pose all the time, right? Um, that statue is not unusual. I love the light shining in on him, though. That's cool. I wonder what time of day they programmed it to have the sun shining right on him. And I love how that, you know, the, the Dunedain all sleep here. Right? I love their little bedsteads. This is so adorable. Right, they don't just sleep in bedrolls, these guys. No, no, they have all they made all these wooden bedsteads. It's so cute. I like it. Um Okay. And here we've got this other inner door. Which would have led to I don't know where. Uh Wendell's bedroom. <gasps> oh, the carpet. You see what the carpet is, right? Yes. It's the carpet which is corrupted into an evil carpet in other places. It's so painful to see. Okay, but apart from the as yet uncorrupted upholstery, um... Yeah, we don't get much that's pictorial in here. Yeah, you can only go in there as part of the epic quest that leads you to go in there. Okay. <laughs> oh, this did you guys fish in the in the water there? That's good. I'm glad that they stock the. Uh, Oh, yeah, so the evil carpets. No, we've observed these in several places. This is the same carpeting that you can see in some of the places in Angmar, right? But the fact that they have it here in Elendil's household means one of two things, right? Either the upholsterer who made this rug design was of the kingdom of Arnor, and the upholstery was taken and corrupted and claimed by evil, in the kingdom of Angmar, or else um, the upholstery, the evil upholstery here shows the first, you know, the stages of the corruption of Arnor, uh, that they were already getting evil as evidenced by their upholstery, or possibly, um, or possibly they upholstered the ruins of the Hall of Tinudir with evil upholstery that they had captured from the Angmarim whom they overcame in battle. And so they're like, we have 
defeated the Angmarim and we are taking their carpets as lawful spoil and we are going to carpet this with formerly evil upholstery to show how we have trodden the Angmarim underfoot. That's the other, that's my favorite theory of the lot. But, um, anyway, okay. All right. Um, exactly. Yes, we have defeated you, therefore we will have your carpets and we shall scuff our, our dirty feet upon, uh, your former luxurious evilness uh, in order to show our defiance for you and the works of your dark master. I think that's the the way that it uh, obviously probably went down. Uh, okay, so I was going to look at more than just Tinadir here this evening. But I think we have found plenty to satisfy us here uh, uh, in uh, uh, in Tinadir. So I don't think we can improve upon that. I am I'm feeling exhausted now after the interpretive effort that went into uh, uh, the interpretation of the copper panels. Um, exhausted but exhilarated. Uh, that was some excellent work. Oh, hey, look, the sun came up while we were doing all that. Um, look at Enuminous from here, right? And again, you can see everywhere, right? Look at the big houses up on the up on the slopes and the hills up above Enuminous, right? Here's the main city, and of course, there's the, the Island of the King there, right, with his throne room and stuff. We look out across the lake. Okay, we can't see much but trees from here, right? But if we... And there's, of course, the big old statue of Elendil at the King's Crossing. Anyway, okay. All right. So we should leave it here tonight. Tonight was a pretty safe field trip, I have to say. I think uh, no low-level characters were harmed in the, uh, uh, in, the, in, in the working of this field trip here tonight. Um, next week, we'll carry on... Um, Assuming we don't get to the house of Tom Bombadil, um, we will carry on. I want to go to uh, Till Ruinen, uh, and I want to go up here to the Eve Spires uh, and look around up here a little bit uh, before we continue on going north. All right, so I should say goodnight, but it's very late now, but it was totally worth it. Uh, thanks, everybody, uh, for helping me solve the mystery of, um, of the panels of Tinadir, I feel so much better. Thanks, everybody. Good night, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now.